0: Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends. Today we are back in the Wisdom, Love, and Beauty archives looking at our short series on the shadow this is part two of I think four total so if you're starting here go back one episode and if this is the right place for you enjoy the shadow my friend last time we thought about the shadow together we introduced the basic idea of the shadow and it seems essential To recognize that the shadow presents a greater challenge than we may at first understand. And in the dominant culture, we tend to talk about these things almost as a matter of trivializing them, as if that's our intention. And yet, many of the things we discuss in these contemplations should be related to as if they're sacred, treated, in a sacred way. And some of the things that we inquire into might appear esoteric in some traditions. that word doesn't mean they're somehow abstract or difficult. It means to say that we would have to go through initiation to talk about them in a real way, in a deep way, in a way that would be helpful for us and for the world. And people reliably go through That kind of initiation because we hunger for initiation. And we hunger for wisdom, love, and beauty, for the real meaningfulness of life. So many of the dumb things that we have done in our lives don't just come from ignorance as such, we could say, or ignorance all by itself, but they come from the soul's recognition of our ignorance and the energy the soul puts into us to seek initiation in order to become liberated from the ignorance. Many of the silly things and even unethical things we do come from the ego's attempt to ignore the soul's calling, even going against the soul's calling. Or projecting the soul's calling onto situations, objects, or people the ego feels comfortable pursuing. Sometimes the soul seems to push us into these ridiculous and painful situations because the ego just won't let go. And only by getting ourselves into humiliating or impossible circumstances. Can we experience the kind of initiation that could loosen the ego's grip enough for us to wake up a little? In general, a lot of the stupid things that we've done in our lives, the relationships we got into that we shouldn't have gotten into, the skydiving trips and the vacations to Patagonia and Bora Bora to go on a yoga retreat or whatever it might be, all the things that we've done, some of them, which appeared to be good. Some of them we still might think were good. And some of them, which really appeared to be quite ignorant, reckless, maybe even unethical. Or at the very least, we could say, was well, sort of mindless, you know. We, were, we see that we were just entertaining ourselves and putting our energy in the wrong direction. And a lot of that has to do with the soul's hunger for initiation and its drive to find some place, some time, that is to say sacred space, sacred time, trying to enter the liminal, to cross the threshold and enter into the unconscious, the shadow, and the unknown in general, to uncover the treasures there, the insights, the wisdom, love, and beauty, and to bring them back to the world. So that we can heal ourselves, rejuvenate the world, and reincorporate, embody what we realized. So we seek for, we hunger for initiation, which means we hunger for wisdom, love, and beauty. Initiation into the mysteries of life means initiation into greater wisdom, love, and beauty. We seek liberation from our ignorance and entrance into the mysteries of life. And a healthy culture would provide for this. It would be seen as fundamental to the well-being of the culture, which means fundamental to the well-being of nature and fundamental to the well-being of humans and the community of life. Initiation brings us into attunement with the nature of mind and the mind of nature. The culture cannot realize health, wholeness, and holiness without providing sacred time and sacred space and pathways of initiation that allow us to enter sacred time and space to cut through delusion and become whole. A culture cannot become whole without individuals in the culture becoming whole. And so we do a lot of ignorant things because we can't find initiation in this culture. We can't arrive at it. And we have so much ignorance about the unconscious and about the shadow that we don't realize how vast the psyche is. And how intimidated we should feel by the unknown, the unconscious, and the shadow. It's not to say that they're inherently scary. We're talking about from the ego's perspective. The ego should feel intimidated, and it does, in fact. That's why it does some of the things that it does to keep us from facing these things and we're just trying to acknowledge that conversations about the shadow tend toward trivialization in this culture because that's what sustains the culture, keeping these things at bay, keeping at bay the shadow, the unconscious, the unknown, the potentials for real liberation, entrance into the mysteries, rootedness in wisdom, love, and beauty, all that has to be kept at bay. And consequently, we don't recognize that given its stature given the relationship that we tried to outline between the ego and the rest of the psyche, it would feel natural to experience fear and trembling in the presence of the unconscious and the unknown. And we face this paradox that on the one hand we're hungry for initiation, on the other hand the ego doesn't really want a real initiation because that would be an ordeal from the ego's perspective, a frightening ordeal, threatening ordeal. So together, here and now, we deal with both of these things. When we talk about the shadow and the need to inquire into the shadow, we're ultimately talking about the need for initiation. It's going to get to that point somewhere along the line something has to be able to hold the energy function as a container like an alchemical vessel and that's sacred space a healthy therapeutic relationship we're talking about a professional therapeutic relationship because sadly some of us try to do this work in relationships and we're not it's just putting another thing on a partner this Obviously, we need to be able to work on our shadows together, face our unconscious together in a good relationship, friendship, romantic relationship, life partnership. We have to acknowledge these things and be able to be present for each other and hold a space of compassion. And at the same time, if we think we're going to heal all these shadow and unconscious elements for our partner or that our partner is going to do that for us, we're putting too much onto a typical relationship we need to also do work in a different way and so a healthy therapeutic relationship could provide some of the context that we need if we could work with a really skilled therapist a skilled therapist who understands the vastness of the psyche or a skilled philosopher or other medial figure can move between these realms and understands these sorts of things and can hold an initiatory space an initiatory experience then we could undergo the initiation we need and undergo the confrontation that we might need with the energy in the shadow and the psyche in general and we need to pursue this with care because, again, people talk about it as if it were easy. It becomes trivialized. People get all excited. Oh, I'm, I've been doing a lot of shadow work. I'm all ready for it, or I'm all ready for initiation. Some initiatory experience. We seek it. We're hungry for liminal space, and we only find what the anthropologist uh, Victor Turner called liminoid space. Not true liminal space. We try to force it. That's why we take all the vacations that we take. We're looking for the liminal experience and we can't find it. The soul hungers for it. At the same time the ego remains afraid of it. And so the ego wants to perpetuate the sorts of experiences that we do pursue. If we don't recognize the ego's fears, some of which themselves might be unconscious because consciously we're not allowed to say we're afraid to look at our our shadow. We're not. We're not allowed to say that we're afraid to know who we are. We're afraid to confront the unknown and the vast landscape of the psyche within us. If we don't acknowledge the fears, the hesitations, the spiritual materialism that the ego engages in, at least acknowledge that it's a possibility. Because if it's unconscious, then we, the best we can do is look for the evidence of it. We won't do that until we acknowledge that it could be happening, that it would be natural for the ego to be afraid of these things, afraid of initiation, afraid of the shadow. Repression means it's unconscious. And then we would have to do some work to prepare ourselves for initiatory experience. And if we fail to acknowledge these fears and repressions and fail to do the sometimes daunting work, you know, because it's it looks boring and disciplined. But if we don't do that work, we won't get everything out of our spiritual life that we can. Or everything out of life, is that's what we're talking about. It's not as if there's some special spiritual life. Spiritual means realistic. We want to know what this world really is, not believe things about it, but find out. So real life, we're going to miss it. We won't have the intimacy. We won't have the rejuvenative capacity, capacity for healing ourselves in our world if we don't do this necessary work. Now the work we do might still feel really good and it might have some important, even life-saving dimensions to it. We can feel a total transformation without touching the deeper currents that we're talking about here. That's part of the difficulty because the ego can experience all sorts of healing and strong energies and ecstasies and wonderful things. And then we'll think that we've done the work and that's very convenient for the ego because it didn't have to face fuller threatening possibilities. And the question is whether or not we want to leave self deceptions in place. Because the self deceptions will tend to keep the whole pattern of insanity of the culture going. And real healing and liberation won't happen until we can also heal the culture. We have to stop the pattern of insanity. We're trying to acknowledge that our shadow work has vast implications now. Let's not creep around it anymore. That's really what we're getting at. Because entire ecologies, whole species, hang in the balance. And if we let our self-deceptions continue, it means real suffering for countless human and non-human beings. That's an extraordinary realization. That so much hangs in the balance of whether or not we will go and confront these sorts of things. Will we go to the places that scare us? Will we fully acknowledge our hidden faults, the ones that might still remain repressed or the ones we suppress, the ones we know about and don't want anyone to see? Will we help beings we think we cannot help? These are the things that get pushed into the shadow or get suppressed by the ego and end up in the unconscious. And these are the real consequences of not taking a spiritual orientation to life. And again, the spiritual orientation means the commitment to find out for ourselves and not merely to believe. Now, interestingly, we can find a, I think, nice scientific allegory or analogy for our psyche that can be useful because... Only a split second ago, so to speak, we discovered that everything we can see in the visible universe is but 5% of the stuff that exists. Now, we still don't really know what that 95% is that we think we've found out about, and we don't even know the full story of the 5%. So we've been looking around, and all the stuff, stars, galaxies, the planet, Earth, everything we see, we thought we were seeing everything. You know, we look out, there's the galaxies, there's all this stuff out there. And it turns out that that's only 5%. And now there's another big chunk, 95%. And it's sometimes referred to as dark matter and dark energy. People debate what's the right term for it, and what is it, we don't know. And it's interesting here that now we have a new sense of the whole, right? Before we thought we were looking at 100% of everything, and then we found out, well, what we were looking at was 5%. But hey, now we have this new 95% plus the 5% we were looking at, and that's 100. So that gives us a new whole. But what if that new 100% is itself merely another fraction of a still larger whole? So the 5% of visible matter plus the 95% of dark energy and matter, that itself might be a mere 2% of what exists. Or maybe it's 10% or 50%, whatever. But there might yet be a larger hole that dominant culture science hasn't even guessed at. And for all we know, the dark matter is the real stuff, stuff so to speak, you know? Maybe that's the, that's the real stuff, and the dark matter beings, maybe they created the visible 5% as part of their evolution. Maybe we're something they cooked up in their kitchen. Maybe the shamans of the dark energy world conjured us, this 5%, in order to find out how the cosmos feels in the framework of time, beings trapped in time. Now, that part might be speculation, but what isn't speculation is that we have never found some thing that itself, for certain, does not break down when the right kinds of energy and analysis are applied to it. We haven't found the bottom, so to speak. We can't grasp the 5%, let alone the 95%. And it seems that reality isn't even composed of matter. But maybe more reasonably, we could say it's composed of ephemeral events, magical happenings that have no solidity to them, except in a relative sense. And indeed, we've even found out that we don't fully understand phenomena we thought we knew rather well. I came across a, an astrophysicist named Brian Fields not very long ago, responding to a relatively recent mystery about our very own sun. So it's just within the past couple years. And this astrophysicist, Brian Fields, he said, it's amazing that we were so spectacularly wrong about something we should understand really well. I think we could probably get carried away with examples like this, but let's instead circle back to our allegory and just let a full sense of this basic cosmic situation land with us. We have found out that 95% of the cosmos was totally invisible to us. And in some sense, it still is. For some of what exists in the cosmos, we can find ways to detect the effects of it, but we may not ever see it directly. We can find ways. To detect the presence of something invisible to our eyes. And thus we can know of its presence, but not look at it in the ordinary way. And we might, for the longest time, remain totally unconscious of it. No idea that it exists. We had no conscious awareness of dark energy and dark matter. And only recently noticed its effects. Or possible effects, we're still confused about exactly what's going on. Now, we could take that as an allegory for how our soul is, how our mind and heart are, how our own body and world are, and how our lives are. We think we see, and we say, I see. And yet we remain unconscious of so very much. When we look at ourselves, so to speak, or look at another person, or when someone else looks at us or looks at themselves, perhaps we only perceive 5% of what we are or what another person is. And 95% of us, maybe more than that, who knows, remains unconscious and unknown. Most essentially, we do not look at ourselves, at others, or at reality and perceive their true nature. Not generally speaking. We don't come out of the womb and we're enlightened and we see the true nature of ourselves and others and reality. And even the self we think we know might be just like the sun, something we might think we should understand, and yet we could be spectacularly wrong about even the conscious parts of ourselves that we think we know. And then on top of that, we've got this other 95% about which we might know nothing. So we could feel some compassion for our poor little ego here, It thinks of itself as the center of everything. You know, that's just default. It's not as if we sit around constantly saying, I am the center of everything. It's a matter of behavior. And there the ego thinks of itself as the center of everything, and yet it floats like a small planet in a vast solar system, or even a galaxy, like the little pale blue dot of the earth floating in the cosmos. And inadvertently, if we notice our language, we tend to speak as if our ego has a soul. And you might say, well, I'm not religious, I wouldn't say anything like that. Yes, but in the dominant culture, this is how people have spoken. It's a pattern of thought that still has us. It's about that style of thinking. In reality, our soul has an ego. The same way the Milky Way galaxy has a planet Earth. So the psyche has an ego, but we we, we refer to my psyche, my unconscious. The psyche as a whole has this tiny little thing floating in it called the ego, that we say, that's me, that's that's what we refer to as I, me, mine. And if we try to know this other 95% of ourselves that for now remains unconscious, obviously we could face some challenges. Some of them might be subtle. For instance, what if what we are isn't an object? Then it could never become an object of perception. And so we could never know it in the way that we try to know other objects, such as the sun. In fact, part of what we have considered in many of our contemplations is that even what we think of as objects might not be objects in the way they would have to be if we were to come to know them in the ways we usually try. That's a major thing to consider. Think of the upheaval in science and thought that this implies. It suggests we need better ways of knowing and being, better ways of living and loving. And it suggests our habitual ways of doing these things could create a lot of suffering. A lot of evil could come out of this mistaken ways. These mistaken ways of knowing and being and living and loving. And when we say, I see, I know, that itself manifests our active misknowing of reality. And what we think of as knowledge precisely stands in the way of insight, wisdom, and broader potentials, at least some of the time. And our habitual tendency to think we know and to operate on the basis of conscious purposes serves to perpetuate our ignorance, and it keeps us unconscious of the presence of the unconscious and unconscious of the mind of nature and the nature of our own mind. Those things remain unconscious for us. Our unconscious remains largely unconscious. There's like a double meaning there, what I'm saying. Obviously, if something's unconscious, it's not conscious. But then we remain unconscious that the unconscious might even be affecting us. We could, on the other hand, say, well, there, there are unconscious dynamics and let me try to at least work with my life with the recognition that they could be having an effect at any given time. That's where we have to start, to begin to see more clearly. We could just at least try to sense the effects of something that has a significant, maybe subtle influence on us, but which we know lies outside our conscious awareness. And again, It presents challenges, but we could at least begin to face those challenges. We could admit, really acknowledge that we do have an unconscious and that the unconscious affects our lives, that it affects our decisions and actions and thoughts. And gradually we might be able to make some of the unconscious material conscious, and that would allow us to truly mature. if we did it as integral to a holistic practice of life, a holistic practice of coming to know the mind of nature and the nature of mind and become attuned to reality. So far, we have placed ourselves more conscientiously in a context that includes the unconscious and the unknown in general. That's the idea. We could imagine that we're doing that now. That could be our intention. To change the ecology of mind. But we have to really engage with it because nothing could be easier than to say, well, I accept the unconscious and the unknown. Because people love to hide behind the unknown like when we challenge somebody else's view on things and we say well you know you don't know everything we don't know it all do we yeah, it's fine to refer to the unknown when the ego feels unthreatened in the process or when it's to deflect a threat that it does perceive well you don't know everything what do they know what does this person know then we'll pull the uh, the card of the unknown but for the ego to genuinely confront the fact that it cannot manipulate and control reality presents an existential threat. We're trying to get at something else here then. Even a cursory glance at the self-help and new age marketplace reveals a veneration of sovereignty. It often gets spiritualized, so it sounds really good, But if we reflect with care we might notice that we want to have a sense of control and a sense that we are masters of our destiny masters of our domain, so to speak. The wisdom traditions teach us a more subtle kind of realization in which we enter into the non-duality of the individual than the collective the non-duality of unity and diversity, the non-duality of the known and the unknown. And even Martin Buber talked about that, where true liberation exists at the razor's edge between free will and destiny. It's not on one side or the other. Scientifically and spiritually speaking, we can say with pretty good confidence there is no such thing as an independent, self-sufficient being. And so rather ironically, people who otherwise celebrate our interwovenness and the holism of life will also try to assert an image of individualism and self-sovereignty. Nietzsche critiqued the dominant culture's notion of the sovereign individual. He pointed out that the dominant culture needs us to have this belief in our sovereignty so that it can prosecute us for wrongdoing, has to know who to blame. And we can also see that we need to have this belief so that the culture can rationalize inequalities inherent to the system as faults of individual character. In other words, a person isn't poor or otherwise marginalized because the system itself creates injustice, inequality, and aggression. Rather, these people are poor or otherwise marginalized because they don't work hard enough, or they don't have an abundance mindset or a growth mindset, or they have some other limiting belief or problem. We get the dogma that anyone can win at this game. And the dogma says our resistance and our failures have nothing to do with systemic issues in the game itself. Our soul may have no interest in the game and it may self-sabotage precisely because it rejects the whole game and we refuse to listen. See, that's the unconscious at work. That's the shadow at work. Well, I mustn't hate the system. I mustn't protest that the system has problems. I have the problem. Meanwhile, the soul refuses to accept this, and self-sabotage ensues, along with other potential problems. It's not to say it's the only thing that will happen, but we mistakenly think the self-sabotage is because we just have limiting beliefs, rather than the soul is rejecting the system. It's a different dimension of the problem of the unconscious. So let's not miss that larger point. Once we let the reality of the unconscious sink in, we can get quite shaken. Realize, wow, this is quite mysterious. And we're also trying to say that we need a truly healthy culture in order to deal with the unconscious in the most productive, fruitful, skillful ways. And no individual can deal with life as an individual, pretending they have conscious control over vast processes that will never submit to conscious agendas. Never. We'll just get negative side effects. Ecologies will degrade. Marriages will break up. Wars will continue. That's what happens. as we begin to make sense of that way of seeing the world, we begin to really touch these delicate interdependencies, then we can appreciate that philosophy as a science means just about what we mean by ecology, psychology, and cosmology taken together. If we had a cosmological and ecological psychology That would be the most direct kind of philosophical science. It's what the old sages were trying to offer. And Jung wanted to say that we need a scientific approach to our mind and to nature, which means a spiritual approach. That commitment to find out for ourselves. Which means a commitment to get beyond our self-deception and our personal agendas, because... Spiritual life is not about our personal agenda, but people treat it that way. It's what I want to do, the practices I like. It's all a spiritual buffet in which the shadow and the unconscious drive us to keep eating spiritual brownies and cookies and avoid the spiritual broccoli and kale. So somehow we have to get beyond these unconscious agendas. Some of them are unconscious or there are aspects of the unconscious that drive us. And we then can't uphold that spiritual commitment to know really what we are, to find out what we are and what the true nature of reality is. And that knowledge would connect us to others. The insights would connect us. Because other people have a shadow too that they're ashamed of, that they're scared of. And that being driven by the unknown, the unconscious, and the fear of the unknown and the unconscious, that creates a lot of our problems. And if we could acknowledge it together and stop projecting onto each other, conflict would become reduced. So Jungians have realized for quite some time that a real recognition of the unconscious would change the political landscape. It would change what happens in the world. That a lot of violence, misunderstanding, aggression, conflict comes from unconscious dimensions. That's the, the best and clearest way to understand it. And then the best and clearest way to heal it would involve acknowledgement of those, working with it. Now, in our last contemplation, we considered Jung because he gave us the term shadow. And we're seeing this spring up more, people are becoming aware of it, and we're trying to address the fact that, first of all, the tendency in the culture will be to trivialize it. We won't do shadow work like Jung or the ancient sages would want us to do it. But we're considering Jung because he gave us that term, and he gave us a vaster sense of the psyche than we see in Freud's work. And it's particularly appropriate for us to consider it because we have a philosophical orientation and Jung really consciously aligned himself with the philosophers of the old, the old ways, the old philosophy as a way of life. That still continues in some traditions. But in the dominant culture, it's largely gone. So Jung didn't actively work as a philosopher, you could say. You have these acknowledgments, but he essentially framed self-knowledge as psychology. That's what he was doing. The psychologist seeks self-knowledge. But he understood his work as that of a philosopher. And he understood the wisdom traditions as psychological, as oriented to healing the soul and rejuvenating the world and realizing the full potential of the soul by understanding the true nature of mind and reality. And Jung realized that no serious psychologist could avoid the issue of self-knowledge is fundamental. And psychology can't heal people, not fully, if it doesn't help them arrive at self-knowledge. So he aligns himself with that old philosophical imperative. That kind of self-knowledge and knowledge of reality is what philosophers of all times and cultures have pursued. what all the wisdom traditions promise us that if we practice in the right way we will arrive at this knowledge of the self and the world doesn't matter dominant culture traditions just go to their roots other traditions around the world same thing indigenous traditions just trying to be attuned with reality And from within the dominant culture and its problems, its encumberments, Jung tried to help people see that we need psychology in this sense more than ever. And that, in fact, it's become a matter of life and death. It's only gotten worse since his time. Our ignorance regarding our own true nature has led the world to ecological catastrophe. Grave nuclear threat, still there, ongoing, hanging over our heads. Deepening inequality, ongoing injustice. And so in seeing the need for meaningful psychology, Jung was simply recognizing the need for skillful philosophy. Without good philosophy, good love wisdom, skillful, realistic love wisdom, we will find ourselves often confused, clinging to opinions, fragments of wisdom that cover over our true ignorance, the actual state of affairs. We we think we've got it. We say, I see. And we've got less than 5% a fragment. And then we run out and we want to coach other people or teach them or make political decisions on the basis of this ignorance. Don't know who, our, we, who we are. We don't know our mind, really. We say we do. Oh, but I've plunged into the neuroscience, people say, and I've looked at all these things. And for, from Jung's perspective and the perspective of the wisdom traditions, these people still remain steeped in ignorance. Just because you can give a definition for what the hippocampus is or the reticular activating system doesn't mean that you've arrived at wisdom, love, and beauty and entered the mysteries of life. Among other things, Jung pointed toward Nazism and Stalinism. And he said, we should really be perplexed. How did Nazism happen? How? In the 20th century, we were such sophisticated people. How did those people come to power? And how did a terrible genocide and a world war unfold as it did? Now we might have all sorts of opinions about it. Jung tried to point out that almost no one had a really good understanding. They might have opinions. But people didn't have a real good understanding because they didn't understand themselves. If we don't understand the psyche itself in its individual and collective manifestations, we're not going to understand these sorts of insane eruptions. You know, even to understand conquest consciousness in general and all the things that it's done over the past few millennia. Certainly in the past 500 years, the destruction that it has wrought, it's incredible. We have to understand the psyche to understand it. It's not an ecological or political problem. It's a matter of ignorance. And so we find ourselves in the same situation but with much higher stakes than when Jung was asking this question about the Nazis. And we should keep reminding ourselves the fate of many species hangs in the balance and that includes the human species. People may claim to know what's going on, how to fix it. Conservatives of... Every variety profess all sorts of things about the godless liberals, and the liberals profess all sorts of things about the reactive conservatives. People storm a state capitol or a national congress, while citizens around the world look on in horror, also in confusion, or maybe in some form of false knowledge. But there, again, I know what's going on there. And Jung invites us to open to the possibility that we have a fragmented and deluded understanding of ourselves and others, and therefore we're, we're not really that clear on why people stormed the National Congress or plotted to kidnap a U.S. governor. These sorts of real evils. If we could really learn about the psyche, about the soul, the 95%, including that part, and the 5% that we think we know. If we could learn about the psyche, the soul, we could understand things more clearly. And things would be different, because we would be different. The world we see, the world we live in, depends on the quality of our soul. The quality of our soul, how we're being. How we know, not what we know, how we know. How we love not who we love or what we love. Those things matter too, but the how is all together with it. We could not get the inequality, injustice, and ecocide we see in this world without confused and disordered souls. We see phenomena in the world that reasonably qualify as evil, and it can and perhaps should shock us the basic question of evil can shake us in our core. How can we destroy ecologies? Wipe out entire species? How can we allow war to continue? Have human beings and non-human beings so tormented, disrupted, violated? How can we allow children to starve? Kids. How do we allow non-human beings to be abused? There are some real horrors in the world. Jung tried to help us see that when we find ourselves standing before the terrifying question of evil we don't really know what stands before us. We don't have a real good idea of what to do how to face it. And he naturally highlights that rather plain question, how could this happen here? And that's a question many U.S. citizens ask themselves about a lot of problems, but certainly quite recently. Gratuitous sufferings, not least of which the raid on the U.S. Capitol building or the murder of unarmed and often totally innocent people. We've seen killings, at times perpetrated by the police or the military. People, many citizens think of as tasked to protect the peaceful and the innocent. People tasked for taking a stand for the good, for justice. And yet, we've seen real evils committed by those people. So, to say it plainly again, we find real evils in the world, and the problem of evil involves our ignorance of evil and our ignorance of our own psyche. In fact, that's how some traditions define these sorts of horrors in the world. It's not a matter of inherent goodness or badness, it's not good or bad, it's ignorance or wisdom. And right now, overall, evil has us. We can see that. It's evil to oppress people. It's evil when 84% of indigenous women here on Turtle Island experience violence in their lifetime. 84%. the murder rate for indigenous women is maybe 10 times or more higher than for white women. Thousands and thousands of indigenous women are murdered or go missing every year. It's evil when innocent unarmed black people get killed by the police or even harassed by the police. Why? It's evil how many black people live under the tyranny of the prison industrial complex. It's evil when corporations degrade ecologies and destroy the conditions of life, contributing to extinction. Just wiping out a line of beings. So that we went from a flourishing of life whether you're scientific or religious. The divine either created that flourishing or processes of evolution did. There was a flourishing of life on this planet. And we went from that period, the period of life blossoming after the last mass extinction, into a period of death. Some people think we shouldn't call it the Anthropocene, we should call it the Necrocene. It's evil when a small handful of people, maybe 10 or 12 at the most, maybe as few as six or eight people, have as much wealth as billions of human beings combined, especially when so many of those billions don't have ready access to clean water, good food, and so on, and they often lack those things as part of the way the wealthy obtain and maintain their wealth. Those, they go together. And we can go on and on. We're not saying that the billionaires or the police are evil, as if their essence is evil, but that evil has them in at least some of their activities in the world. And it has them in those activities because of widespread ignorance. That Ignorance is the problem, and the ignorance includes... Ignorance about our own psyche and ignorance about the nature of evil. It's a situation we can heal. We don't have to remain stuck like this. This is healable. But we won't overcome evil by thinking we can trample it, as if we need no training and education, as if we can just will evil to be gone or fight it by means of violence. We could call it fighting the good fight, but if it's aggression and violence, it's just adding more evil to the world. Anything we do on the basis of ignorance adds more evil to the world. And we can't fight evil by trying to get rich. It's a funny strategy that some people uh, seem to want to take. Well, if all the nice people got rich, it would be fine. Clear perpetuation of ignorance in that strategy. Jung realized that the problem of evil for us, and the problem of our ignorance about our own soul, our own body, mind, and world—it has to do with the terrible weakening of the mythopoetic dimension of our culture. That those things go together: a loss of love wisdom or philosophy degrades along with mythopoetic vision. Vitalizing mythology has gone almost out of existence. And we only have the incoherent stories of economics, our fragmented sciences and politics, and our misguided mass media. The stories they give us won't really nourish the soul in the ways we need. Mythology as the creative Expression of a truly vitalizing philosophy of life used to guide the life of individuals and communities. We've lost that guidance. And now we have a flood of really bad philosophy that largely perpetuates our suffering. That's the main function for it. Now Jung felt we do have workable mythologies. But that ironically, they too have ended up in some ways in the shadow of our psyche because it's, now, it's, it's not allowed to work with Christian mythologies. And that's one of the examples he explicitly points to. He says, you know, we could work with Christian stories. He takes the example of when Jesus said, Be you therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And Jung just asks simple questions. Why would human beings need the cunning of serpents? And what's the link between this cunning and the innocence of the dove? Then Jung considers the phrase, except you become as little children. And he asks a serious question. Who really observes and gains insight from what children are like in reality? Who really, really observes and gains insight from what children are like in reality? Do we really know the nature of youth and youthfulness, or do we merely think we know these things? Jung himself struggled with it. And we can consider a marvelous short passage from his record of the visionary journey he took into his own soul. You can find this in the so called Red Book. He writes, I had to recognize that I am only the expression and symbol of the soul. In the sense of the spirit of the depths, I am, as I am in this visible world, a symbol of my soul. And I am thoroughly a serf, completely subjugated, utterly obedient. The spirit of the depths taught me to say, I am the servant of a child. Through this dictum I learned, above all, the most extreme humility as what I most need. The spirit of this time, of course, allowed me to believe in my reason. He let me see myself in the image of a leader with ripe thoughts but the spirit of the depths teaches me that I am a servant, in fact, the servant of a child. This dictum was repugnant to me, and I hated it. But I had to recognize and accept that my soul is a child, and that my God in my soul is a child. That's a fascinating passage. It's repugnant to him. He had to confront something repugnant to himself and he had to be humiliated. And note here he's talking about the body, the way he talks about it. I am as I am in this visible world, a symbol of my soul. Now in our last contemplation on magic, we inquired into patterning, and we considered Yeats's third principle of magic that says, the great mind and great memory of nature and of the cosmos can be evoked by symbols. That's an interesting resonance, isn't it? We considered Jung's suggestion that we ourselves are a patterning, not an object, but a patterning, a happening, or constellation of happenings. And here Jung approaches the same idea from a slightly different angle and it can open our minds and hearts if we let it. The body is a symbol, a patterning of the soul. The body is not what we are but a symbol of what we are. We get so confused about embodiment. In the dominant culture in particular it's it's all kinds of spiritual materialism. And we can... Also recall Vimalakirti here. That was just our last contemplation. We talked about how Vimalakirti manifested himself as sick in order to help people. When people heard he had fallen ill, they went to pay their respects and inquire into his health. And in his first teaching in that state, he explains to, to the people gathered that the body is like a magical illusion. And that the body of an enlightened being, a liberated being, is born of wisdom and insight, born of ethics and meditation, love, compassion, joy, equanimity. And here Jung says the body is a magic. (laughs) That's where we put it all together, right? The body is a symbol, it's a magic which we can think of as conjured from wisdom, love, and beauty or conjured from ignorance, fragmentation, aggression, clinging, craving, hoping, fearing. The body itself is part of the magic and mystery of the world and the cosmos. We are not just our body. But if we fully relax into our embodiment, We relax into the magic of the body. We release ourselves into the amulet or talisman that a human body can be. The human heart, mind, and body can be a magical amulet, an elixir, an incantation for the world and her beings to conjure forth in creativity, to conjure forth healing, Rejuvenation. New possibilities and potentials. The body is a symbol, a magical incantation of the soul. In our true nature, however, we are magic itself, not a particular incantation. And the magic itself is a child. It has youthful energy. Viriditas, fresh mind, moment to moment. It has a sense of playfulness, even in situations in which the ego and its body feel threatened and serious and scared and grave, maybe terrified, stiff, stuck up. The body of magic, the body of the soul, Comes and goes. It lasts as long as an incantation. It evokes the great mind and memory, then fades back into them. But the magic keeps going. The incantations keep singing out of the silence and returning back to it. The elixirs keep pouring forth, healing, rejuvenating beings in mutual nourishment and mutual liberation. But in the dominant culture, childlike things go into the shadow. And quite tragically, human beings caught in conquest consciousness rarely become adults. Isn't that funny? There's a weird thing that is going on here. In the dominant culture, there's this weird veneration, apparent veneration of youthfulness, and yet people don't become adults. And it's all tied up with this forcing of something, or forcing of a variety of things into the shadow. Because... Not growing up doesn't mean people express the wisdom of the soul. You might say, oh, yes, people venerate youth in this culture and they don't become adults because they're expressing the wisdom of the soul. No, it means quite the opposite. Because things like death, old age, and youthfulness in this more profound sense get pushed into the shadow, then people in the dominant culture cannot fully touch the wisdom of these things. And that can seem astonishing. Culture seems obsessed with... Youth, staying young, and yet at the same time we push the child dimension of the soul into the unconscious. That's why. (laughs) The youthfulness is in you. It's not how you look. Because we haven't fully grokked or entered into the mystery of this youthful energy, wisdom's youthful aspect, then all we can do is project onto surfaces. No depth. We allow what we approve of, we repress what we don't, and we project. We push aging and eldership into the shadow, along with these more profound aspects of youthfulness. We push genuine maturity into the shadow. And of course, we push death into the shadow which can only sometimes leave us with a drive to self-destruction. That's part of the ecocide, too. Strangely, we sometimes do throw tantrums and give in to impulsives, you know. We, we can behave impulsively. But that's not the nature of the child that Jung found himself servant to. Rather, these are encumbered expressions of something that frightens the ego too much for the unencumbered aspects to come to light. Sometimes they are pushing through in their encumbered aspect. Whichever way we look at it, our tantrums relate to our lack of spiritual maturity and to the traumas of childhood in the dominant culture. We don't have healthy childhoods here, not as a rule. And we have a general inability to enter the magic of the body, the magic of the soul, the heart, the mind, the earth. That's the earth's magic too. The green shoots of springtime, the way she never gives up, keeps a beginner's mind. And the shadow holds aspects of youth that stand close to the veil, we could say. Right? The way the old, the very old, and the very young stand close to the veil, so they stand close to each other. They have a deeper residence than we might understand in the dominant culture. It's honored in indigenous cultures, but it's covered over here because we put grandma in a nursery. And we, we, rather than living in the same household so that grandma is there day to day, close to the ones who are similarly close to the veil. The shadow holds the link to the impersonal dimension of youth, we could say, which means our essential nature that does not age and will not die. So we've pushed into the shadow the youthful aspect of Sophia, we could say, wisdom herself, the youthful aspect and energy of life, sacredness as wildness and veriditas. And we've pushed it there with aspects of aging and death that equally befuddle us. Now this youthful aspect of wisdom gets portrayed by Nietzsche in his Zarathustra, It's an interesting book to read. In Walter Kaufman's translation, we read that Zarathustra descended alone from the mountains, encountering no one. But when he came into the forest all at once, there stood before him an old man who had left his holy cottage to look for roots in the woods. And thus spoke the old man to Zarathustra, no stranger to me is this wanderer. Many years ago he passed this way. Zarathustra he was called, but he has changed. At that time you carried your ashes to the mountains. Would you now carry your fire into the valleys? Do you not fear to be punished as an arsonist? Yes, I recognize Zarathustra. His eyes are pure, and around his mouth there hides no disgust. Does he not walk like a dancer? Zarathustra has changed. Zarathustra has become a child. Zarathustra is an awakened one, What do you now want among the sleepers? You lived in your solitude as in the sea, and the sea carried you. Alas, would you now climb ashore? Alas, would you again drag your own body? Here Nietzsche has someone recognize the childlike aspect of wisdom, as it appears in Zarathustra. I love that part, No. No disgust hidden in his visage. Just like an innocent child with beginner's mind. Baby doesn't know to be disgusted by someone. And Zarathustra walks like a dancer. And he goes down the mountain to teach people. He's awakened and he goes down to teach. And among his teaching he offers the allegory of the three metamorphoses of spirit. Zarathustra says the spirit becomes a camel, then the camel becomes a lion, and then the lion becomes a child. So, first, the spirit becomes a camel, and becoming a camel involves an act of profound strength. The spirit, or we could say the soul, in reverence, we could say these are symbols of the soul. In reverence, the soul seeks to bear the most difficult things. That's why it becomes a camel. It kneels down. And Zarathustra includes things like loving those who despise us and offering a hand, a helping hand, a loving hand, to ghosts that frighten us. So he's in part there talking about facing our demons and our shadow. The camel kneels down and asks for a heavy load wants to take on the difficult. And then it stands up, the camel stands up and heads off into the desert. In the loneliness of the desert, a second transformation takes place. The camel becomes a lion. The lion has to confront a dragon. This is unfortunate Western mythology. Dragons are good people. Uh, or are dealt with in different ways in other mythologies. But here is being a little Western, and the dragon is something we have to somehow confront. He doesn't overtly say slay, but we have to stand up to it. And the dragon has a funny name. The dragon's name is Thou Shalt. So here we see a typical dominant culture notion. Because the dominant culture has so much delusion and incoherence in it, then as we mature, we go through a stage of rebellion. If we didn't wish to rebel against the dominant culture, I think we'd be truly lost. Whereas in other cultures, it's not necessarily some kind of inevitable course of one's maturity. I have to rebel against everything the culture has taught me. Plenty of cultures, if, if you're taught such wonderful and important and essential things that you mainly want to preserve them, That would be the ideal culture. At any rate, Nietzsche recognizes that in the dominant culture, we darn well better have a moment of saying to the thou shalt of our culture, I don't think so. But there's this image of the lion. It's kind of interesting because Nietzsche is already, it seems, questioning the notion of the sovereign individual here, which he will write about in, I think, about four years or so in the genealogy of morals, because the lion who defies thou shalt by asserting, I will. The lion still isn't the end of it. The lion has to undergo a metamorphosis in order to realize a fuller potential. Now, the lion has the capacity of what Nietzsche calls the sacred no. That's a life-affirming no. That's where we say no to Habitual patterns of thought, speech, and action. We say no to self-deception. We say no to any kind of oppression, fragmentation, these sorts of things. In the Wind Horse Mandala, this marks the entrance to our spiritual life in a way. It involves one of the four core skills. Those are skills that we are as opposed to skills that we have. But the sacred no has to give way to a sacred yes. And that's what Nietzsche gives us in the image of the child. The child has that sacred yes that the lion doesn't actually have. The lion might think so. I will. Seems like a yes. But no, it's not real. The child has the beginner's mind and a kind of purity of heart, a playfulness. And The original mind original mind means the mind of the origin, not the mind of novelty, not I can make my own path, I can create my own thing no, the child can accomplish original thinking and original activity because the egocentric lion that says I will gives way to the original mind that can will its own will (laughs) which is Maybe a little paradoxical, but it's the idea somehow that we have to transcend do, the doer. And Nietzsche himself didn't fully get this, but he got it from his artistic experience, the feeling of how when someone writes a poem or composes a, th- a symphony or something that the real thing comes through, we didn't will it. It's like a self-propelled wheel. That's how Nietzsche describes it. So these are all difficult things in the dominant culture to get at. But they do exist in our wisdom traditions too. So some of it's rather subtle, we could say. The essential point comes to the resonance we find in Nietzsche, in Jung, in other traditions when it comes to recognizing the youthful aspect of wisdom. Now our consideration of this youthful aspect of wisdom took its impulse from Jung's Taking up the Bible, remember he was looking at it and saying, "Well, there are we we have mythopoetic vision here. We could use it. We have to rejuvenate it, but we could it, it's workable." And he was asking questions about the Bible, including that image of the child. You know what? What is it? How, except you you become as children, and he asks other questions about the Bible as well. For instance, he says, by what morality did the Lord justify the taking of the donkey he needed in order to ride in triumph into Jerusalem? And how was it that shortly afterward, Jesus put on a display of childish bad temper and he cursed a fig tree? And he asked what kind of morality emerges from the parable of the unjust steward? And, he asks, what does it mean when St. Paul confesses? The good that I intend, I don't actually do. And the evil which I do not wish to intend, that I actually do. Ah, there's the Christian tradition getting close to Vimalakirti. Or maybe, as a saint, he was only asking it about us. Maybe he needed to encounter Vimla or maybe he was, he was himself a Vimla liberated figure. But Jung wants us to, to really recognize the profundity of this question. How can that be? This mismatch between what we intend and what we get. The vast majority of human beings on this planet do not wake up in the morning thinking to themselves, today I would like to degrade ecologies, and I would like to contribute at least in some small way, if not in a good, big way, to my own suffering and the suffering of other human beings and other non-human beings too. Why not throw them in as well? That doesn't seem to be the declared intent for the majority of people on the planet, and yet this is what we get day after day after day. So we may or may not think we intend evil, and yet much evil happens in the world on a daily basis. And Jung points out that we now have to meet the question of evil without the full-fleshed help of mythology. And can we guess what will happen, what Jung suggests will happen when we have to do that? Meeting the question of evil, meeting the ignorance of our unconscious, no help from good love wisdom, good philosophy, and a vitalizing mythopoetic vision. Well, what happens is we start to project mythological meaning and power onto anything or anyone we can, and that would include politicians and today our tech gurus. In other words, let's be real clear. Donald Trump swooped into power And we'll say this, it doesn't matter whether we voted for him. This is not some liberal's dismissal of of, of a political figure. Uh, Would not have been happy, say, with Obama, not particularly thrilled with Biden as a president. It's better than Donald Trump, but it's not like it's good. So this is not some kind of bleeding-heart liberal Reflection, we're looking, Donald Trump. Did he swoop into power because of genuinely good character? Because he was wise, loving, graceful, a beautiful human being, and therefore a truly great leader? Is that what happened? Or did Donald Trump swoop into power because we have become so cut off from visionary love love wisdom, so cut off from the mythopoetic energies in our own soul, that those energies had to discharge into anything that would function as a spiritual lightning rod, even the cheapest and most degraded of alloys. It's not a judgment like some personal thing. It's about a, a person's character, what they've become, not what they are. It's not that Donald Trump's some bad person in some inherent way. It's a question of ignorance. It's a question of whether or not we see true leadership, true ethical character. And it's also a question of how do we understand this phenomenon that a failed business person even went bankrupt running a casino, which is incredible, with all sorts of ethical questionabilities, real issues about character and behavior and so on became a real hero to millions of people and people like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk become visionaries in this culture they're treated as heroes and no wisdom tradition would ever evaluate Donald Trump, Steve Jobs or Elon Musk as visionaries and as heroes Now, why does that happen? The idea is we have ignorance of our own soul. A lot of energies get forced into the unconscious. There's no mythopoetic framework and no philosophical framework to work with them, and so they they discharge. They get projected. Whether we voted for Trump or not, he appears as the shadow of the collective psyche, which means carries relevance for all of us. And his reflection of the shadow of the collective psyche helps us understand why people confess that Trump says things that they believe but never dared to say. There were things that were just right there that they were aware of. Some of them weren't even being repressed. They were being suppressed. But there are other good people who have those energies in their shadow and it's totally unconscious. So we're all together in this, in other words. It's not that, well, the people who voted for Trump were the problem. No, all of us remain largely ignorant of our own psyche, including the shadow and the unconscious. It's not to say no one's doing any work on themselves. It's that the problem might be vaster than even those nice people understand. And Trump doesn't invite people to face their shadow and begin working with it Rather, he invites the supposedly good people who think that he's unethical and so on, who who want to condemn him in some way. Well, that pushes things further into their shadow. And others, it seems to invite them to let the shadow loose, whatever evil may come from it. And it won't help to to create the the brighter, sometimes Jung seems to describe, the brighter and more goody-good we are on the conscious level, the darker the shadow might be. So again, we're all in this together and given the clear dangers of putting figures like that into positions of power, and we're including corporate positions of power, you know, give, letting people become wealthy, you know, given the grave dangers of thinking of tech gurus as saviors or visionaries in any meaningful sense. Given the real suffering of humans and other beings in in the world, given the ecological catastrophe and the ongoing nuclear threat, we can sense that our present situation doesn't allow us the luxury of ignoring the psyche, including the shadow, including this potentially vast landscape of the soul, of which we know perhaps nothing or at least very little At the same time, we could acknowledge that Jung, as an experienced psychologist and a gifted healer who had seen so many people, studied so many people, studied the culture, seen people up close, trained other analysts, all this experience, and he felt that we have become ill-equipped to face ourselves, ill-equipped to arrive at any significant self-knowledge. And we seem to have no ethical choice but to become well-equipped, at least more well-equipped. And that's what love-wisdom offers us. Love-wisdom offers the training we need to begin to work with our own mind and to work more skillfully with our heart, mind, body, world, including our shadow, the collective shadow. Thankfully, thankfully, Once we have a reasonable grounding in love wisdom, we don't have to be advanced, but we can can get a basic grounding in fairly quick order. It doesn't take long to get a basic education, and then the basic process of shadow work can begin, and it's not ridiculously complicated. The work we do involves incorporating the shadow into the shadow work, we could say, into the general cultivation of the mind, heart, body, world and cosmos incorporating this full exploration of the psyche into our whole interwoven holistic spiritual practice of life and we'll look at some concrete aspects of how we could discover and work with our shadow in our next contemplation I think that will be helpful for some people We'll spend a little time seeing if we can provoke it in ourselves, just enough to notice its effects, maybe, or begin to get some pointers for how we might look for the shadow and begin to work with it. And again, one of the important things is to find that initiatory container, a therapeutic relationship, a good philosophical community that is prepared, not just any philosophical community. Some communities fall apart because of the unconscious. So the community has to have people in it who have done the work themselves and know how to hold the space so we'll look at some of uh, some of the ways though that we can start to find the shadow's influence and the shadow's presence in our next contemplation now in the meantime if you have any stories of the shadow or the unconscious that you'd like to share or any questions or reflections about this week's contemplation please send them in through wisdomloveandbeauty.org And we might consider some of them in a future contemplation. That would be delightful. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care.